This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... GM Goals for Con Games. The Sino-Vietnamese War. The Escaped Fox Demon. And Swami Vivekananda. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the voice over the tannoy saying, William Shatner is signing autographs now in the blue room. (laughs) Welcome us into a special convention episode of The Gaming Hut. And here in The Gaming Hut, we're going to talk about what you, as the GM, should expect to get out of a convention besides a hideous cold. Robin, what do you think? So, I'm thinking more of what you, as GM, should plan to put into a con game, actually. Well, you get out what you put in, in this as in so many things. Yeah, I mean, if you're running... A game at a convention, your whole reason to do so is to have fun running something uh, with different people or running something new or having a good time. And the best way that you can have a good time, of course, is to show the player is a good time. And so within those constraints, what do you have in mind as you go to the table to show people the the entertainment that you can uh, provide to them? And already, I guess I'm sort of pushing my own uh, agenda there. Your pro-fun agenda, Robin. My, my pro-fun agenda. Because, of course, there are other reasons to run and to play games at conventions. So, for example, people who are running demos, that aim is promotional. Mm-hmm. You want to get people interested in the game that you either for the company you're working for or volunteering for. Or maybe the game you designed, if right. you're a designer runner. Exactly. Although I would actually submit that that's the same thing, that mm-hmm. if your goal is to give the players a fun time and then they will go and buy your game and like it. Others, however, would argue that the whole point of this is to teach the game to people. And in fact, there are some people who go to conventions in order to learn new games. And that's a bit of a challenge because if you were to sit down and go, what can I do to maximally teach this game and to instead have the most fun for everybody are possibly different things. And both are, you know, choices that uh, people make. But I'm, my feeling is that even when running or organizing a demo secretly, I don't really care if you learn anything (laughs) about how the game plays rules wise. It's it's, it's a way to not be disappointed later. Right. What I do care about is whether you had a good time and are intrigued enough to follow up. But certainly there are people, especially with more detailed games, who go, and that's their objective, is to, you know, have someone sort of teach them how to play. And I don't know, Ken, whether that's 
as common now, now that there's actual play, perhaps that does a better job of that. But to put a digression on top of a digression, I'm not sure how many actual play podcasts actually show you literally how to play games because they often forward the fun as well. And kind of uh, their question is, is not so much, will you walk away from this knowing how the initiative system works as will you be entertained by it? Right. So Kim, when you uh, sit down uh, when you're running a con game and, and we, I guess we should also reveal it. We don't run that many games at con, certainly not at big ones. I mean, we, I think we both have uh, before there was a time that that was literally how I got to be at Gen Con was by running Nephilim and call of Cthulhu for chaosium. I used to be one of their many, many noble, Convention GMs, a calling that is among the most noble. Right. And and if you fly me to an especially appealing location, and it's a small con that's focused on running games, I sometimes do break my general avoidance of that. Right. So given all the caveats, what goals do you set out for yourself, Ken? What do you want to feel like you've accomplished at the end of a, a con game session for your players? I mean, by and large, I absolutely agree. Giving the players a fun time is the sort of the foundational job that you have, whether you're demoing or just running to run. But what you can do is think of the sorts of experience that you want to, the core experience, if you will, that you want to associate with that game. So in a Call of Cthulhu game, you can have fun a million different ways, but the fun that focuses on the Call of Cthulhu specialty is the fun you have uh, seeing monsters and going insane and maybe being eaten. And that is then what you sort of privilege when you're constructing and then running the game is that you focus on that aspect of it over and above the, you know, resistance table or whatever else you might be, you know, also happy with as a mechanic, but it's not a core experience part of the game. So, To begin with, let's assume that you're designing the scenario, design the scenario to feed into those experiences, not to be the sort of scenario where by clever good luck, you've avoided what makes Call of Cthulhu different and fun and interesting by, you know, uh, burning down the uh, warehouse before you ever see a monster. That might be fun even, but it's not that game fun. And that's the real job of the game is to specifically create this, this, uh, interlocking you know, reinforcing degree of fun between you, the GM presenting this cool, dramatic situation, ideally the players getting into it, and then also the rule system showing off uh, what it does uh, best or most evocatively. And if you can build, you know, one of those moments into a four-hour session, I think you're doing pretty well. I usually try for two or three just because I'm an ambitious guy. But the goal is always that you get them to the schwerpunkt, the point where they're you know, enthusiasm for the story, your enthusiasm for the details and the, and the world and the game's rigorous fun are all happening uh, as close to simultaneously as you can. And sometimes that does take a whole four hour scenario basically to funnel them into the one spot where, ah, now, now you'll get to see the, the real joy of, you know, whatever, of the psionic system, of the spaceship combat or whatever the thing is that makes that game special and and glistening on your own mouth. Right. And part of that is a factor of how much time overhead is involved in doing the marquee moments of any given game, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to uh, a champion's superhero fight. That's the whole point. And it's going to take a while. Whereas, uh, you know, the psychological literary horror of uh, Yellow King, you can do that with a couple of die rolls. So that makes it all the more important if you're, thing that you're spotlighting takes a lot of time to make sure you build everything else around making sure that you have that time and focus so that Mm -hmm. you're not, oh, suddenly, you know, we got into the superhero fight and we've got 25 minutes left. Yeah. Uh, So part of that is sort of keeping in your mind what the big moment is that you want to present and making sure that you channel everyone toward that and, you know, avoid, you know, even if there's some super interesting character digressions, will everybody feel happy walking away from a champions game where you didn't get to a superhero fight? I would also say though, that my, I've sort of shifted my goal a bit recently to a good convention game is one where every player will walk away remembering one cool thing that they did so that everybody gets a cool moment. And part of that then is keeping an eye on who has already had their groovy moment and who maybe hasn't yet and trying to, you know, push things 
uh, toward them. And of course, what the thing is, you've already mentioned, depends on what game it is. So if it's a creepy horror game, uh, make sure that the uh, the player who's uh, sort of hasn't had an opportunity to be creepy horrified, something comes at them. Or, you know, if it's the, you know, a dramatic game where you're all playing artists in the abstract expressionist scene in New York City in uh, 1952, and, uh, you know, nobody has gotten a drunken hangover yet, and there's this uh, one character who who really ought to, you know, move things in that direction and give people opportunities not just to do the prescripted thing that you think that they should do, but just put a ball in front of them that enables them to go in a bunch of different directions and to think of something cool. If you can kind of create hints so that there's a default cool thing to do, that's, uh, you know, all the better. But I think really what people are mostly looking for at the convention table these days is that moment of inspiration, that exciting thing, the, the thing that role-playing is all about is the spontaneity of the moment. And the thing that they tell their friends afterwards, oh my God, it was so cool. I woke up from my drunken abstract expressionist hangover, and then, you know, we had to sort of reconstruct everything that I'd done the day before, because it turns out I might have killed a guy. And it's like, oh man, that sounds like a great game and great chewy storytelling. And you want that moment, you know, whether you're, it's just uh, for your own ego as a GM, or because you are evangelizing the game, whether you're creating, demoing, or just a fan of it, you want people to tell those stories and have those, those moments you know, about the game that you ran them through. And so even if someone else is like, well, I I played over the edge and it was fine. Someone else will be able to come back and say, oh, wow, with my GM, it was insane. It was nuts. We were in some sort of weird absinthe hangover the whole time. It was amazing. And you want that counter moment uh, to sort of, you know, knock out other people's memory of someone else was maybe not as good a GM as you. Right. And so practically what that means ahead of time rather than in play, which you've already explained, is building in opportunities for player creativity that interact with whatever it is that the the game is. And so, you know, if it's a superhero fight, make sure there's lots of options for people to do fun, cool things in the super fight and to help them to do it if they don't get there. And so look at what it, uh, not just at what the game is spotlighting, but ways that they leave in holes for the player to sort of plug in their creativity so that they feel that they've had a moment to think of something and and do something groovy and cool. And that something can be a tactical move in a fighty game. It can be a character interaction in a uh, more uh, dramatic or interpersonal game. But just leave those openings, um, meaning having kind of a looser structure going in so that you don't necessarily know how it's going to go, but you know there's going to be lots of chances for the players to show you where it's going to go. Yeah, being open to that, it's sort of a neat neat dance, more so in a con game than in your home game, because in a con game, as you say, you do really need to enforce a little bit of table discipline and make sure that you do, in fact, leave time for the big fight or the big uh, monster-eat-your-face scene or whatever, and you can't follow player creativity as much as you can at your home game where, oh no, if we're halfway through the fight, that's cool. We'll pick it up next Monday. You want to be able to allow for that creativity, but be a little more aggressive. And I think at con games, people are a little more open to letting you steer it back into the main trough, the main story course, right? And so that's, you know, one of the tool, I, I don't know if that's technically a goal. I mean, it's still the same goal that we've been talking about, but it's a tool or a strategy you have to keep in mind. I, I think we should maybe mention that one of your really big tools for doing these, both the cool moment and the climax or game beat moment, is with a con game, you almost always have pre-gens. So build those pre-gens so that they can do cool stuff in the game. And I I think that that's, maybe it's self-explanatory, but the number of times I've sat down to a table and my pre-gen has been, well, he's a fighter. All right. Okay. I can do cool stuff with a fighter, but you did not help me do anything cool with this fighter. Yes. And uh, I I guess the flip side of that is um, if you are a proactive player sitting down in a con game, you can hopefully without throwing the GM off, be a player who who takes care of, uh, you know, their own requirements Mm -hmm. so that if you can early on find a cool, fun thing to do that moves you toward what the uh, objective appears to be. Uh, you can then show, first of all, that Jim can mentally tick you off the list of people who needs a cool moment. And you can kind of, 
guide the players toward their picking cool moments. I think sometimes people are reluctant to do that. And if you have a GM who's sort of more like, I've got a track for you to be on, you know, they're not following the give everybody a cool moment rule. They're following a, I've got a bunch of, you know, scenes that I want to have happen, or, you know, I want to lead everybody to this, or I just, you know, want to follow the uh, scenario. So it is sort of a, a balance. And I think ideally, whether you're the player or the GM, the idea is to have the two things come together so that the cool moment feeds you into the marquee scene of the game. Yeah, that's that's really the amalgam that you that you want to look for is that those cool moments build and ideally all of them build toward that cool scene so that everything feels natural or organic at the table. And I guess at this point we've recapitulated and reinforced, so the only thing to do left is retreat. The Ordo Veritatis needs you. Needs you to suit up for covert investigative battle against the elusive Ezoterrorists. And the monstrous beings they think serve them. But really, it's the other way around. The dread outer dark entities. All you have to do to help is to get in this bundle right here. The bundle of holding, that is, reviving its Ezoterrorists PDF deal from November 2015. You have this already. But tell your friends, loved ones, and deniable assets to pick up the core of the Ezoterrorist line from Pelgrane Press. That's the Ezoterrorist by me at bundleofholding.com. But beware, the bundle disappears back into a cloud of plausible deniability on Wednesday, April 6th. On the horizon, we see uh, plumes of smoke. We move toward the uh, tent. It's a camouflage tent because uh, we're headed once more into the command hut. And you may have noticed that we've uh, alluded uh, to the existence of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the show, but we can't discuss it in detail because we have a long lead time. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Ten days from now, whatever the story is, it's not what it is as we record this, but... One thing I've noticed about war is that it, uh, among the things that it brings out is historical analogies. And another thing I've noticed about it is that because wars are so infrequent, and that's a good thing, yeah, of course. Yeah, right, because we're, we're pro the absence of war here at the, at the hut. We, we always want to have a small sample size mm -hmm. when it comes to the history of war. But it turns out that the more you drill into any conflict, the more its unique qualities uh, come through. However, this has reminded me of, I think, one of the wars of the past century that almost immediately fell into the memory hole because it was of short duration and it was an intramural conflict that involved the geopolitics and warfare within the communist bloc. In uh, the Anglosphere, I think we've kind of forgotten that this happened, but in fact, it was a big deal. It was yeah. a, a short but very rough war. And of course, I'm talking about the Sino-Vietnamese War of 1979. And Ken, if uh, our listeners are, uh, are are like many, they're now shaking their head. What? What? Sino-Vietnamese War? I re vaguely remember this. from when I was at, in high school when this happened. It was in the news. But of course, again, even at the time, you don't get a lot of news out of the uh, communist bloc. And the Daily Oklahoman, regardless of its strengths in other areas, and I'm sure I will think of some eventually, not really the best for Asia-Pacific defense coverage, weirdly. So, yeah, I mean, I, I saw it. I read about it. it. You know, I probably even read a special issue of Time magazine about it, but then it stopped. Yes, and you would have been the, the highest information-seeking 1979 version of yourself that there was. Yeah. So, we're, so this happened from the 17th of February to the 16th of March in 1979. Mm -hmm. uh, the Chinese refer to this as the self-defensive counterattack against Vietnam, which is perhaps my favorite paradoxical war name. Mm -hmm. The uh, Vietnamese refer to it as the war against Chinese expansionism, which is uh, pithier. <laughs> Has the merit of being slightly truer. <laughs> slightly true. They were invaded. And uh, in the West, it's known as the Third Indochina War, which is both boring and reductive, mm -hmm. as if to suggest that uh, the three major conflicts in Indochina were just kind of similar. And obviously, there's ripple effects. But this is a very different conflict. So, Ken, why don't you go into a uh, a bit more detail on uh, uh, what this was, and, and then we can find out what this tells us, if, if anything, about uh, geopolitics and war. All right. What the war comes out of is 
the falling out between China and Vietnam and also between the Soviets and China. So you've got a pair of splintering. So when you say within the block, it's what it's part of what makes it not a block anymore. Uh, China and Vietnam both support the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia during the Vietnam War, the communist side. But when Pol Pot comes to power in 1975 in Cambodia, he either because he's worried that he uh, knows firsthand how badass the North Vietnamese army is or just needing external foes to justify his horrendous genocides and purges starts attacking Vietnam and Vietnam at some point loses patience with this. Yeah. So like we are down with the genocide, but, uh, but the invading Vietnam part, this psychopathic mass killers betrayed us. Yeah. Who'd have thought? Who'd, what, it was both sudden and inevitable. How, what was that about? So the Vietnamese, uh, they, they send in a, a sort of similar to the American invasion of Cambodia, sort of a, a probing incursion, then they pull back, figuring they've done their job. Then Paul Pot doesn't get the hint. Then they really invade. And they invade on Christmas of 1978. And in about a week, they've cleared out most of the country, overthrown Paul Pot, and installed a pro-Vietnamese puppet regime. Well, uh, China, which had been sort of frozen out of backing Vietnam during the war, there was a period, in fact, in the late 60s, when the North Vietnamese basically purged most of the party that was pro-Mao and left the part that was pro-Brezhnev. Was this because the KGB had been training the Vietnamese secret police? Who can say? But it certainly did not make things any happier uh, in communist China. So they were already steamed about it. Then to lose their client state in Cambodia would have left them completely without influence in Indochina after having spent basically 30 years trying to get a puppet state in Indochina uh, against the French, then against the Americans. So China decides to teach Vietnam a lesson by invading it the way that Vietnam invaded Cambodia, and also to teach Russia a lesson because the Sino-Soviet split is moving along rapidly now. And Russia and Vietnam have signed a number of very grandiose uh, mutual defense treaties. And the Chinese figure if we invade Vietnam and Russia doesn't do anything, that will show them to be a weak partner. Right. And one thing it will remind Russia is that they're nowhere near Vietnam. And right. so they're yeah. not in a position to resupply it or really support them without going through other Chinese or allied territory. But the Chinese drop enough hints, for example, telling President Carter that the infant has grown unruly and must be spanked, <laughs> that the uh, Soviets do maintain their forces on the northern Chinese border on alert the whole time. So China can't deploy most of its troops south to Vietnam. So when it finally comes about to invade Vietnam, it does so mostly with the troops from the Southern military districts, which is about 200,000 troops and about 200 tanks. The Vietnamese have about 70,000 troops in theater because most of their troops obviously are off occupying Cambodia. Uh, the Soviets airlift the Vietnamese military from Cambodia to the northern frontier and do provide 400 tanks and AFVs for the Vietnamese. So they sort of balance out the armor disparity. But as you allude, they can't do any more. And they certainly don't want to get into a shooting slash nuclear war with China over a stupid client state like Vietnam. So that's all they wrote. So the Chinese, you know, cross the border, basically all along the border. They move about 15 kilometers, 20 kilometers in, which if you've been following the uh, war in Ukraine, you know, is about the range of a communist truck <laughs> on, you know, uh, over bad roads with one tank of gas. They uh, reach the town of Lang San, which is the far northernmost end of uh, what's called the old uh, Route Colonial, the road that runs the entire length of Vietnam. And they do probing attacks into it, waiting for the Vietnamese to rush their troops into Lang San to defend it. And the Vietnamese, however, have got Soviet satellite intelligence, just like some other people have got satellite intelligence against a different invader, and they don't fall for it. The Vietnamese say, well, we've got our guys in Lang San, they're going to have to tough it out. They do a little bit of, of mobilization, mostly between Lang San and Hanoi, so that if the Chinese just blow through Lang San, they'll be able to shut the door on them. But mostly it's, you know, Lang San can fend for itself. And Lang San, the defenders are outnumbered 10 to 1, it looks like. Uh, there's about three weeks of fighting. The rest of the Vietnamese army stays the hell out of. And 
Then the Chinese take Langsan, they take the hills south of Langsan. In theory, the highway is open to Hanoi, but again, there's a whole bunch of Vietnamese divisions that haven't been in the battle waiting between Langsan and Hanoi, and the Chinese were very badly bloodied because it took them three weeks to take this town, even with a 10 to 1 advantage. So what they do is they declare victory and pull out. They say, well, we've taught Vietnam an important lesson, and that will show them and so they leave. And that's uh, the end of the war, basically. And so what was their strategic objective going in? Well, it, it's hard to say because, of course, the Chinese now lie and say that their strategic objective was just to demonstrate the weakness of Soviet guarantees. It's clear that their strategic objective. A lot of people died for that very abstract. Yeah. Alleged yeah right. strategical. I, I, I think that they thought that they were going to roll into Hanoi down the route colonial, right? That they were going to just run down that highway and, uh, either take or badly threaten Hanoi. So and is their goal occupation or regime change and pull out? Or I guess we just don't know. I, I think their goal was to force Vietnam to turn Cambodia back over to Pol Pot. I think if, if they'd had that and then, you know, demonstrated the toothlessness of the Soviet military guarantee, you know, maybe uh, allow Chinese troops to be stationed in Cambodia, that probably would have been what they want. They they could not have wanted to occupy Vietnam. And I'm pretty sure that they were aware that regime change of Vietnam in 1979 of all times was not going to happen. So I feel like it was really just a war over Cambodia, over who gets to run Cambodia. Right. And and if for some reason anyone is sympathizing with the Chinese in this, <laughs> knowing that, oh, yeah, we want to put Pol Pot back, is, is not something that, that stirs the cockles of yeah. any non-psychopath's heart. And there is another theory that I am kind of fond of, but I, it, it's, it so confirms my priors that I almost don't like it. But the theory is that Deng, who remember is, you know, Mao is dead now. Deng is consolidating power, you know, as rapidly as he can so that he doesn't get bounced by the next guy, needs something to distract the army so they don't overthrow him. And he figures, I'll just send them on a no-hope war against Vietnam. That will keep them shut up. And then when they try and say that I'm a bad communist because I'm, you know, introducing, you know, private property and stuff, I can say, oh, yeah, who got their noses bloodied by Vietnam, you losers? And so it there's an argument that it's mostly an internal political battle between Deng and the army. Now, I want to believe that so much that I have to sort of pull the air brake a little bit and stop myself. Right. And it's also taking a typically stupid, awful human situation and making somebody smart. Right. Which yeah. I think it's often, often we want to do that. We want to think that somebody is, you know, if evil, also smart. Right. But it turns out that the interaction of various stupidities explains a lot. And in, in fairness, Dang was not a dumb guy. He was smarter than Mao in a lot of ways. But yeah, I feel Low like bar. it was an overcalculation, a miscalculation. They thought, Vietnam, because their troops were all in the South, would be easy fodder. They thought that their army, which had, in fact, in the Korean War, you know, swept all the way from the Yalu River down to basically, you know, the DMZ without a ton of interference and against the Americans, by the way. Maybe they thought, well, how hard can taking half a country be? We did it in 1952. And so I, I feel like the, there was a, a, it was more likely miscalculation, overstretch, et cetera. And at the end, you've got between 13 and 26,000 Chinese soldiers killed, between eight and 30,000 Vietnamese soldiers killed. And if you note, that's a very big range. I will remind you, communist countries, even more than regular countries, lie a lot. <laughs> so we're not sure what the numbers are. And the civilian deaths in that stretch of northern Vietnam is probably around 10,000. But the Chinese absolutely devastated the little stretch of countryside in, you know, drove off all the cattle, burned off all the crops. They did a huge amount of damage. So, you know, collateral deaths might have been another, you know, 10 or 20,000. There's just no way to know. Uh, the Vietnamese then also purged a lot of the Chinese, ethnically Chinese citizens of Vietnam. And so there's another 10,000 odd people that got tossed into prison camps over it. And uh, they also badly broke up the Hmong tribes up in the northern part of Vietnam that had been anti-communist 
and anti-Vietnamese government since forever and were suspected of being a little too happy when the Chinese rolled over the border. So there was a further human toll over and above the ongoing frontier skirmishes between China and Vietnam in, in division strength. I say skirmish and you think, oh, it's a little squad of guys come and snip some barbed wire like jerks. No, they the Chinese made several division strength assaults across the border and didn't give back a tiny little piece of Vietnam, the part with the friendship bridge in it, in fact. <laughs> they left the irony bridge intact, however. Yeah, the irony bridge was just beautiful. You should go see it. But 81, 84, uh, between 86 and 87, again, many divisional strength battles. Uh, there was a naval skirmish in 1988 over the Spratly Islands, which you may recall uh, the Chinese claim for literally no reason. And in those series of uh, ruckuses, you've probably got another 2,000 dead Chinese soldiers and another 4,000 dead Vietnamese soldiers. And they don't finally normalize relations until after 89, after the fall of the Soviet Union sort of concentrates Vietnam a little bit. And so they, they, they settle the boundary disputes. They, you know, stand down off the border a little bit. And that's in 1990 and 1991. And that is really the end of that episode. Although the war itself, as we said, is just a month long and it accomplishes virtually nothing except to get a lot of people killed. So the question of how to incorporate this into a game uh, is somewhat challenging because unless you're confident playing either Chinese or uh, Vietnamese characters in this period uh, in a situation where our ability to see into what is going on there and what people are thinking and doing is pretty limited, is this a, a backstory for something contemporary going on with Knights Black Agents or Esoterrorists, or is this something that we want to take and move into the realm of a science fiction conflict and use it sort of as a, 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 a completely nerd-troped version of it so that we have an access point into it? I, I feel like you could definitely use it as a, a science fiction, you know, battle among the stars situation where the, you know, the big evil space empire is attacking the tiny, you know, plucky space planet that is, you know, just fought off a bunch of invaders itself. You, you could even have the, you know, the, the Death Star has been taken over by the, uh, the plucky planet and, uh, you know, rid of all of its evil Sith guys. And now the big empire is, well, we like those Sith guys. They were, they were righteous for us. And so uh, you have that situation. You could also do it as a setting into which you have to go as Delta Green, that the, you know, the war has, you know, knocked over some temple that, you know, is supposed to be there keeping Atu or Nyogtha or uh, Ma'anka or one of those uh, bad gods penned up. And during this, you have to sneak in via Thailand and, and go through the war zone and, and prevent something even worse from erupting. Or this can be something that happens in the background while you're having a mission in Cambodia to do basically the same thing. Now that Pol Pot has fallen, while the Vietnamese are distracted, this is your window to go in and rescue that very important piece of Delta Green technology, or maybe those Delta Green prisoners that were kept from uh, Operation Obsidian, and get them out of Cambodia. And you've only got a month because at some point the Vietnamese troops are all coming back, or you've got even less, right? Yeah. And, and if you have to drop into the actual combat zone, that's an interesting thing where you're in a war zone where either side wants to kill you. Yeah, right. <laughs> You'll be unwelcome no matter who you happen to run across. Uh, so that you could certainly have the, you know, I guess a stealth uh, element of that. And of course, that's after Delta Green falls. So, you know, you're, you're deniable on top of being deniable. Mm -hmm. Well, having figured out uh, what Delta Green would have to do with a historical event, I think uh, that's time for us to move through a commercial forward into a moment in history that's happening right now. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through Save us from the military miscalculations of larger, more overconfident podcasts by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Mark Kevin Hall. Michael Manival. Neil Dalton. Phil Bailey. And Nate Merritt. The clatter of the teletype. The announcement on the tannoy. Once more, this is a hut that is ripped from the headlines. Beloved Patreon backer Gabriel Rossman and many others have called our attention to the fact that after a thousand years, a boulder imprisoning a notorious fox demon slash Jezebel figure has shattered. If you really need more of a slow pitch over the plate than just that headline, how would this fit into a two-part F20 modern horror game? And uh, what Gabriel and... Uh, the legions of friendly supporters beside him have in mind is the fact that the Sesho Seki stone known as the killing stone or the death stone <laughs> near the town of Nazu in Tochiji prefecture, North of Tokyo. Well, it, it split open on March 4th and now it's just a hollow stone. You can still see the little sacred rope around it, but it's open, man. Whatever was in it got out and, it's not just some random stone-killing thing. No goodness me. It is, in fact, the demon Tamomo no Mai, the nine-tailed fox, one of the three terrible yokai. And, I mean, as Gabriel says, this writes itself. If you can't yes. just take that information and wander away and have your good time with it, well, keep listening, I guess. <laughs> and part of that is that is that people have been writing about her for a long time. Yeah. She's like in uh, No Plays and in Benraku and there's Yukio Prince of her. And uh, of course, now she's an anime and manga character. Uh, my suspicion is that she got out of the rock to take vengeance on whichever manga illustrator drew her as a blonde elf with overspilling cleavage. Mm -hmm. I think that would be enough to en enrage anybody. But the other interesting part of this story is that basically if you can think of any horrible uh, regime that spiraled into decadence and awfulness, she's been attributed to that, mm -hmm. not just in Japan, but also in, in China and in India. So there's a for mythological monsters, she exists in historical time, mm -hmm. and uh, she's knocked over, been responsible for uh, degenerating more than one era of more than one country's history. So starting in 1070 BC as the uh, mistress of the Shang Emperor Di Jin, and uh, she ended the Shang era through her reign of terror. Yep, she was not good. He was a, a noted degenerate and murderer, sort of a Caligula-type guy, and apparently it was because he's uh, getting it on with a nine-tailed fox spirit. Right, and the thing about nine-tailed foxes, I guess we should say right up front for those unfamiliar, is that they're shapeshifters. Yeah. And usually she chooses the form of a an alluring uh, woman, because how better to lead degenerate leaders astray than, than to do that? But, you know, sometimes... When she needs to get adopted, she'll turn into a cute little baby by the mm -hmm. side of the road, little and you'll baby. pick her up and adopt her. And uh, it, it's almost as if it's a way of back rationalizing a whole bunch of disparate historical figures. Oh, never mind. Yeah, Forget no, that. No. That's nonsense. So she she moves to India and gets someone named Prince Benzoku, who may or may not have existed, to execute thousands of people by beheading them and engage in cannibalism. And that's good fun. Then she becomes the concubine Bao Shi, or possesses her, depending, who is the concubine of the King Li of Zhao. And famously, her bit was that she made a little pouty face. And so uh, the King Li wanted her to laugh. And so what he came up with the idea was, is he would light the danger beacons and have the army run up. And when the army ran up, 
they would say, oh, we just did that as a prank. And then she would just laugh. And that was so much fun up until the time that the barbarians actually invaded and they lit the danger beacons and no one showed up. And uh, that was what happened to King Lee and Baoshi, you know, one assumes she laughed herself back into Fox form. Uh, at some point she travels, even China is running out of degenerate monarchs to uh, suborn. So she goes to Japan, according to the, well, records is not the word, but there's a legend of her that is written down probably around in the 14th century and then updated in the 16th century. So she travels in the year 753, uh, shape changes as Robin, as you said, into a baby, gets adopted, is raised as a beautiful uh, young woman, and then joins a plot to kill the Emperor Toba. And the Emperor Toba retired from being emperor in 1123 and went off to just enjoy himself. But if you were the emperor, Emperor Toba would just show up and say, oh, you know, just let me, let me help. Let me just, oh, I'll just take some of this. And so right. basically. And, and that was like standard emperor stuff. Yeah. You would retire and you just mean you would move to a nicer house and the, your successor had to do more of the paperwork, but you rarely relinquish full power. Exactly. It was, it was a real jerk move. So you can understand why people wanted to kill him. There was apparently a plot that she's either involved in or starts. They don't really say the year, but I found out that the Imperial Palace burned down in 1148. So I'm going to say that was the year that she did it. The sage Abe Yasunari detected uh, Emperor Toba's dwindling powers and uh, said, that's Tomomo no Mai. That's the fox spirit. Get her. And uh, the army is called out. They chase her up. To Nasu, the warrior Mura no Suke kills her and she turns into uh, the Death Stone. And the Death Stone, I guess we can fun ruin briefly by saying it sits in a volcanic vent field. And so, yeah, poisonous gas comes out and kills animals. Basho, the poet, uh, said that the dead birds and bees covered the ground around the Death Stone, that you couldn't even see the th other rocks. Right. Well, if you want to prevent people from messing with the Death Stone, put it near where the poison gas yeah, is. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Buddhist monk Geno in 1385 hears about this Death Stone, hears that there's problems. He takes a sacred hot springs bath, armors himself with the sutras, and he goes up and he smashes the Death Stone with a hammer. And uh, good for him. The story is vague on does he exorcise her ghost or does he just smack on it and weaken her by splitting her into three stones? One of the stones went to Fukushima, Robin. Uh, one went to Hiroshima. And so I guess you can see that they and, really and were this death is the stones. Last one. This yeah, is the one this we is the were last relying one. on to remain intact. Uh-huh. He said, well, I think I've done my part. But ever since then, there was a ritual called the Gojin Kasai that was held on the last Sunday in May, and you would dress up in your fox mask and your golden tassels and your white robes, and you would play the drums, and you would sing the Stay in Your Stone song, and uh, that kept her bound up up until, well, a couple of weeks ago. Well, we've all been distracted. So. Yeah, right. I mean, that's yeah. what it was, right? It probably, they didn't do the dance because of uh, COVID, and... Now, this is what happens. Yeah, and the membrane's been thinning. Mm -hmm. So, yes, as, as Gabriel points out, the obvious first part of that, the F-20 scenario, we don't even have to write it. It's written itself. It's the battle mm -hmm. uh, with the one, one of the player characters is the sage, Abe Yasunari. The other is the fighter, Mira Nasuki. No doubt there's a thief slash ninja, probably a couple of magic users, a cleric. And it's all about the fight against her and her henchmen. And at the end, you know, when they... They burn down the palace accidentally, quote-unquote, because player characters. Right, or she burns down the palace to keep them at bay. Yeah, that seems like that's, uh, yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> player characters never burn down All a palace, there's, there's a There's a fortress, it's flammable. But whatever happens during the fight happens during the fight. Yep. you, you got to create possibilities for exciting moments, mm -hmm. you know, to call back a bit. And, you know, when she's reduced to zero hit points, she turns into the rock. And mm -hmm. there you go. The present-day horror game... This is clearly Esoteric's territory. She's mm -hmm. uh, for a demon, very political, just like the uh, outer dark entities that the uh, Esoteric's truck with. And we can, I think, pretty easily imagine. Uh, we know from the legends that uh, she was famous uh, not only for being beautiful, but also always perfectly turned out so that her uh, clothing is never wrinkled. Apparently, she smells great. Well, clearly, as soon as she's out of the rock, She's going to shape change into somebody and she's going to be on Insta and on TikTok before you know it. Undoubtedly, she's been in the rock planning this all out and has followed social media and realizes 
that never has uh, humankind been more susceptible to spiraling into decadence and decay than it is in its present moment. And I would think she would stick close to home and uh, insinuate herself into the present government in uh, Japan. People are very un unhappy with and has their own predilections and connections to uh, other dark things in the past that should not be uh, that should not have their rocks uh, opened up. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure she would uh, have the ruling party engaged in uh, in cannibalism before you know it, except, of course, that the Order of Veritatis is going to send you, the player characters, to uh, uh, banish her once more, uh, put her into perhaps a more high-tech rock, uh, one that they can keep an eye on and uh, get that membrane uh, thickened up. And and the way the Esoterics work, of course, they could just break the rock open and rely on people's fears and thoughts about her to summon her into existence. So she wouldn't even necessarily have to be in the rock, but right. it's more fun if she's in the rock. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, definitely uh, the social media explosion after the rock busted open is what makes your outer dark tulpa type thing show up. I mean, that's literally as clear as you can get from going to basically nobody who wasn't a, a Japanese yokai enthusiast knowing who Tamomo no Mai to pretty much a billion people knowing about Tamomo no Mai. So that is, can I, are you implying that this very segment is assisting a murderous cannibalistic shape changing fox demon? All I'm going to say is she smells great, Robin. That's uh, all I'm going to say. Get, we better stop this segment right here. We're, we're very sorry. Let's have another segment. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene hint at Yohannath lie and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time once more to wend our way up the creepity cobweb stairs, and we're going to stop on the landing. We're going to wave at the painting of the uh, mystical fiery salamander who's going to give us a little wink back, and then head on into the Edwardian parlor where waits the consulting occultist. And this time around, uh, the consulting occultist is going to build on a theme that he's touched on many a time, which is that many of the occult or new age, or in this case, more uh, mainstream mystical traditions, we think of them as being very old, but actually it turns out a lot of them were invented in about the same, what, 70 to 80 time span from like the 1850s, the first couple of decades of the 20th century. Yeah. And since it claims to go back thousands of years, you might think that yoga goes back thousands of years, but turns out that yoga as we know it was first sort of conceived, and later people will come around and, and refine it, by a uh, person named the Swami Vivekananda, who in the big swirl of esoteric interest in the 1880s and 1890s created yoga. And another sort of surprise is that today, for example, some yoga practitioners are arguing that the cultural appropriation has to be removed from yoga, that it's an Indian tradition, therefore has to, uh, you know, have people who are, are not of that heritage step back from it. But it turns out it was invented as an export, as a cultural export for Western consumption. So, Ken, I think that's your cue to start uh, telling us 
about the Swami Vivekananda and how Western esoteric tradition informed what he was doing and how what he was doing later informed that tradition. Right. Well, he's born Narendranath Datta in Kolkata. He's from a successful Bengali family. He uh, gets to go to college. So he studies uh, both Indian and European philosophy at Scottish Church College in what was then Calcutta. He is a prodigy. He is a speed reader with an eidetic memory. There's lots of anecdotes of him, you know, borrowing a book or a bunch of books from a scholar and then returning them the next day. And the scholar's like, oh, were they not what you wanted? He says, no, I read them already. And then they would quiz him on the contents and he would come back and obviously had done the reading. So he's one of those sort of uh, freak geniuses that pops up. He studies music. He studies literature. He studies science. He's got to cast everything in a very wide net. Um, and as a result, partly of this endlessly questing mind, he is not super happy with either the Hinduism that he's generally brought up in or with the Presbyterianism that his college is teaching. So he joins the Navavidan, which is a splinter group of a group called Brahmoism, which is not to be mistaken for Brahmanism. And certainly if you did that, the Brahmins themselves would be very mad at you not to get too deep in the woods, because once you start talking about Indian uh, mystical sects and belief structures, you can do that all day. But Brahmoism is a sort of Unitarian Hinduism. So if you think of something trying to take all the polytheism and weirdness and fun out of Hinduism and make it acceptable to po-faced Yankees, except the Indian version of po-faced Yankees, you have Brahmoism. Well, Navavidan wasn't having quite so much po-facedness. So what they were believe in is to worship God as the mother uh, that all religions. Right. So they were not, not just, they weren't Brahmoists, but they were a, an offshoot of Brahmo. Exactly. Right. right. Okay. Brahmoist splitters, neo-Brahmoist or uh, post-Brahmoist thought. And they, they worship God as a mother. All religions are true, which is not to say that the truth is found in all religions. It's the opposite of that. It's that, yes, there's Muhammad. He was a prophet. Yes, there's Jesus. He was the Messiah. Yes, there's Ganesh and Kali and all the gods. Buddha it taught that the world isn't all of that is true. And philosophy will help you straighten all that out. And finally, to basically reclaim Hindu polytheism into Brahmoism. That's their third sort of branch because they don't like the fact that you're basically ignoring the gods. So in 1881, he's a new Navavidanist. He's getting very excited about this. He's still taking his lit classes at Scottish Church College, and he falls under the influence of the mystical man from the East, and by East, I mean the East part of Scotland, Dr. William Hasty, who, while teaching Wordsworth, says, Wordsworth uses this word trance an awful lot. If you want to know about trance, you should check out the Guru Ramakrishna, who is the greatest expert on trance. And uh, sure enough, doing extra credit, he as he does, Narendranath goes and seeks out Ramakrishna, says, well, this is ridiculous. You're just a Kali-believing mystic. You don't have anything to contribute. And Ramakrishna says, don't I? And uh, that apparently is the answer that you give to young uh, Narendranath. And so they go back and forth. Ramakrishna puts more and more faith in him. He gets more and more into Ramakrishna. His father dies while he's studying with Ramakrishna. So he sort of transfers a little bit of that paternal affection, one assumes. And then when Ramakrishna himself dies in 1886, he passes the order of uh, monks that he's run on to Narendranath, who takes the name Swami Vivekananda at that point. And then he goes around India all over doing his sort of Navavidanist take on Hindu mysticism, which ties into an older tradition called Vedanta, uh, which again, we have not the time to get into, but he's sort of a new style Vedantist, if you will. But at the same time, he also becomes a Freemason. Dr. Hasty has got him reading Emerson, so he's got transcendentalism going on. And he's also, of course, as are all Indian intellectuals of the time, very much influenced by theosophy. And so all of this is going on as he's crisscrossing India for, you know, seven years. Then in 1893, he hears that there's going to be the Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago. And this is part of the World's Fair. So they're going to have all the world's religions get together and argue about what is good. Yes, there's there's no better fairground attraction in 1893 than it packed a in. conclave of ecclesiasts. 7,000 people attended the Congress to watch this series of theological disputations and agreements. Yes, it, it was the Oprah 
of its day. And you may say, well, that's very forward thinking of Chicago to invite Hindus to their world's religions. How positive? Well, uh, the only Hindus they invited were members of the Brahmoist movement and theosophists. So their notion of Hinduism was still a little bit foggy or they were like, well, we don't want like people who worship idols. That would be wrong. But also Vivekananda was, uh, was a hustler. He, yeah. he made the point of getting invited. He was not, he wasn't invited either. He, he made sure to get the right connections and, yeah. and to get in. There. What he did was he, he had a job talk at Harvard <laughs> and, and for William James of all people. And he sort of laid out his philosophy and William James was like, I have never heard a better talk in my life. This guy should go. And so his Harvard buddies get him assigned to the Brahmoist delegation. And it's at that point with that credential that he addresses the parliament in 1893. He opens with sisters and brothers of America. And that gets a two minute standing ovation. And then he lays out his uh, philosophy of Vedanta and people go crazy. They go nuts. They can't get enough Vedanta. He is absolutely the hit of the parliament of the world's religions. And so he stays in America for four years. He founds the Vedanta society in New York, which is basically a missionary group to bring uh, the wisdom of India to the benighted heathens of America, which I guess has kind of a fun take on it. And certainly newspaper editorials are like, why are we sending missionaries to India when they're producing such wise and uh, spiritual folks as Swami Vivekananda? That seems right. like crazy. Talk. He was a superstar. He really he was, was big. you know, was gigantic. a mesmerizing speaker and a fascinating figure. And, you know, they couldn't cover him enough. He's young. He's in his thirties still. And so he has, he has a lot of uh, attention on him. He travels around. Uh, he is given land in California to set up a temple and the Vedanta temple is still out there in Southern California somewhere. He then in 1896 publishes the book Raja Yoga and yoga is a very, very, very old group of disciplines and group of belief structures that goes back, you know, basically to the Indian Renaissance when they're laying all this stuff out. So probably the eighth century AD and Raja yoga is only one of the four strands of yoga. And he thinks Raja yoga is the best because it's the one that is closest to mesmerism, new thought and transcendentalism, which are what he has sort of sifted Western philosophy to produce. Right. It's got the best. It's, it's the, has the most parallels to the Western occult. Right. And, uh, it includes breath work and prana and this notion of an indwelling spirit that is very, very powerful in Western occultism. But he deliberately takes out and deprecates Hatha yoga, which he refers to as merely physical postures. So when you think yoga, if you're thinking about what everyone thinks about yoga, doing your asanas on a mat, He's again it. Vivekananda will have none of your superstitious foolishness. All of the work is done in your head. It's done by meditation. It's done by controlling your breathing. It's not done by stretching like a goof. That has to wait until the basically the 1920s for another guy to uh, bring Hatha Yoga into respectability. And that's because India basically is looking for its own version of physical culture, which is the, you know, lift weights for the Lord sort of attitude that Teddy Roosevelt embodies, for example, in America. And so that's, you know, down the road, our boy Vivekananda definitely is only about the Raja Yoga and puts it out there in his book very much uh, synthesizes in the way that Brahmoism does, in the way that Navavidan does, in the way that even Ramakrishna had uh, synthesizes these sort of Western occult traditions with the tradition of Raja Yoga, which is, like I say, goes on forever. Anyway, he goes back to India. Uh, his health is beginning to give out. He briefly returns to America, sets up the Vedanta Society in San Francisco in 1899. He attends the Congress of Religions in Paris in 1900, but he's not quite the sensation that he was at Chicago. Uh, he can't go to the Congress of Religions in Tokyo in 1901 because his health is too bad. And in 1902, before his 40th birthday, he dies of a stroke at uh, the monastery of Belur Math in Kolkata, which he has founded to continue Ramakrishna thought. So that's the career of Vivekananda. And he is, as you say, Robin, he's sort of a, a forcing house of, of, of a mixing bowl for all of these traditions. And then because of his, you know, great charisma, his genuine, visible, you know, good thought and charity, you know, you can call it his spiritual quality if you like. No one ever has a bad thing to say about him. He's not one of those cult leaders that has a, a group of underage, uh, you know, uh, acolytes off in the corner. He's out there doing the good work. He 
keeps telling people who just want to do the philosophy part. He says, the philosophy part is great, but if you're not actually giving money to the poor, you're only helping yourself. And that seems selfish. So, you know, he did what he could to make everyone better people. And he did it in Chicago, which is double points. And uh, he didn't want me to lie down and stretch and hurt myself. So I think three cheers for Swami Vivekananda, as far as I'm right. concerned. Um, and you will, though, now there's a simplistic narrative uh, beginning to develop around the realm of uh, conspirituality, which is a, a great term <laughs> to describe the way that the whole wellness and New Age movement is being sucked into the vortex of right-wing conspiracy theory. And so you'll have some people who are pushing back I, I like against being that. sucked in. It literally is born from it. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, but you'll also have people arguing that, you know, it's essentially a fascist movement. And now, you know, the right wing authoritarian government in India promotes yoga, the newer version of yoga, and they promote it as expressly secular, which of course it is not remotely as part of their soft power imagery around their authoritarian government. But Vivekananda had nothing to do with that. As you say, he was a, a straight up guy. He was not uh, talking about Hindu nationalism. He was talking about pan-nationalism. He was trying to bring everybody together. And uh, it's, uh, I think, pretty unfair, uh, except to point out that, you know, yoga is, uh, as his practice is pretty recent, to uh, tar him with that brush. But you, you do sometimes see narratives that, that sort of you know, the through line is, well, yoga is just sort of a fake and it starts with this. And it's like, he was certainly very sincere and, you know, anything but a fascist. I mean, any exercise that where you have to go to the gym is fascism. <laughs> yeah, you know? right. I mean, right Whereas, there. You know, yeah. fitness you do at home is anarchy. But aside from that, you know, it's, it's very unfair to label him a, a proto-fascist. No, I mean, as far as I could tell, I, I'm not sure he really had a political set of thoughts. He didn't really consider it to be important. Um, it, he was not part of the Indian revolutionary movement, except insofar as he was never believed that India was any worse than other cultures or any weaker than other cultures. He was obviously very pro Indian thought and Indian literature and Indian religion. And one of the things that is part of Vedanta is the belief that, you know, no, we're not all some sort of mushy, you know, average uh, Unitarian Westernism. All religions are true that Kali actually exists. She's a real goddess. You can worship her. And that, you know, level of, of sort of pushback against uh, westernizing homogeneity is, is kind of interesting and kind of fun, but no, he's not, you know, you, you, you wish to see that he was throwing Molotovs against the hated British, but nope, he was just out there trying to feed poor people like a, like a chump, I guess. Right. And there's also different points in history where the sympathy to Hindu nationalism is different depending yeah, on right. whether they're the underdog or the overdog. So he is active in the 1890s. So although he doesn't literally show up in Paris in 1895, it's not a giant bend of uh, history to, uh, to put him there as a sort of benevolent figure who might have some techniques that you can use to center yourself uh, once Carcosa begins to impinge itself upon your consciousness. Or certainly you could have people influenced by him or his disciples show up in Paris and, and interact with them or, you know, even send the player characters on, on missions to uh, deal with the, the Yellow King and his forces, because uh, certainly the attitude of the Yellow King is that all religions are untrue except for mine, mm -hmm. and I am the only living God. And so uh, this is, and you don't have to answer the question of whether Kali is real to uh, envision that this might be some way of uh, getting rid of a few shock cards by mm -hmm. uh, consulting Vivekananda or uh, some of his followers. Yeah. The interesting bit is that, you know, you could also be doing a thing where, you know, one of his followers is, has come to uh, Paris and is attempting to incorporate Carcosan thought into Navavidan, into Vedanta to, you know, make it one of the all religions that are true. And you're like, well, you can't do that. There's some religions that while they are true are horribly dangerous. <laughs> and so you're sort of trying to protect this holy and good, uh, spiritual Mr. Magoo from falling off the edge of the, of the, of, of the religious chasm that is opening your mind to, uh, Carcosa and, uh, seeing the living God as, uh, the King in Yellow would put it. So you could, you could do it as, you know, they're a guru who can help you, but also they're a guru who's horribly vulnerable to Carcosa because they're not, they're not bigoted and, uh, suspicious of other religions the way that you Americans might be. <laughs> right. And you can certainly portray over time 
through into uh, this is normal now, or even bring this into uh, trail, and which is the era where half the yoga is being refined, mm-hmm. or into a fall of Delta Green, where the original idealistic pan-cultural philosophical movement is being taken as, oh, look, all of these beautiful mystical ideas that we tentacled entities and or minions of Carcosa can put into play and uh, exploit. Because, of course, uh, there's nothing like uh, idealism for the bad guys to exploit as they seek their uh, disciples to prey upon. Well, if, if we're exploiting idealism and preying on disciples, I guess what that means is that uh, we should maybe draw a curtain over that ugly display and think about what we've done, Robin. I, I feel like maybe a little, you know, breathwork and prana or maybe a nap. Yes, I, I guess we've done that and we've helped a nine-tailed demon. Next week, we're going to have to, you know, really, really atone for what we did this week. A little spiritual cleanse. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep podcast-eating demons locked in their boulders by joining such backers as... Urs Blumentritt. Chris Farrell. Josh Borlace. Ludovic Javant. And Monster Talk. Wear the show or drink it from a with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Enjoy such classics as Walrus Revenge. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>